The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Dr. Judith Schley, the Associate Director at Denver Public Health, with Jennifer Nagger, the Treatment On-Demand Lead at Denver Public Health, and Dr. Josh Bloom from Ambulatory Care Services at Denver Public Health, with their presentation on the Center for Addiction Medicine's Strategic Framework at Denver Health. Hi there. Um, I appreciate you all coming. My name is Judy Schley. I'm uh, the Associate Director of Denver Public Health, which is Department of Denver Health. And I am the co-lead, co-director of the Center for Addiction Medicine. Um, I've been at Denver Health for 32 years. And uh, I'm a primary care family doctor as well as do public health work. And with me is Jen Nager. And I'll, I'll let you oh, I'll, She'll introduce herself in just a few minutes when she does her part. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you an overview of the Denver Health Center for Addiction Medicine, which I think you'll find interesting. And then we have another presenter coming. Um, but uh, Jen then will talk about our Treatment on Demand program, which is quite interesting to hear about. And then uh, Josh Bloom, um, who's a general internist at Denver Health, will talk about our ambulatory care system and how we provide um, uh, treatment to patients in the FQHCs that we have. Okay, so let me give you an overview. I always start with the why. Why do we care about this? Why do we want to do it at Denver Health and those things? So we know that substance misuse is a problem in our communities and that we, we are lacking comprehensive services and particularly the people that come to our door, um, there are not as many options as we'd like there to be. And so we know from lots of other things we've done at Denver Health, that we can provide what we call a comprehensive, no wrong door approach to providing those services. And so that we can do it from wherever a person reaches, uh, touches our system, we can find them and we can give them services that they need. And I'll go through that and you can see how that works. The other reason for the why is, this is an interesting uh, uh, graph. And as you can see in the graph, the prescribing rate of opioids is decreasing. And this is national data. And so, and this is national data that's showing that the, uh, the rate of prescribing is going down, but the rate of deaths from opioids is still going up. And so this is uh, something that says we need to have services for people. The other piece of it is, is that, um, this is just opioids, and anybody who works in Colorado or in Denver knows that we have more of a problem than just opioids. And so we want to actually look at it more in an inclusive way for all substances that we're seeing. We're going to talk about opioids here, but know that the, uh, we're really visioning what we want to do in the future, and I'll explain why in a minute. So in terms of, again, the why, so MAT. Uh, medication-assisted treatment. There are two main treatments that you can use, Suboxone or Buprenorphine, Naltrexone with me and Methadone. Methadone is a much more regulated medication and Suboxone it can be given in a primary care setting if you're a provider who is what we call X-wavered, that they can actually get those, uh, they have been trained and they can prescribe it. It's sort of a, 
an extra piece on your DEA license. Um, and so what it does is it treats this, the withdrawal and all the symptoms. And I look at it like antidepressant kind of medications when I talk to primary care patients. I give medications to help deal with the balancing of the chemicals in their brain. And then they go into counseling and they work on the things that are trying to help them do better. And to me, that's important. You can't treat a substance use disorder or a misuse if you don't, first of all, stabilize the person. And that's what these medications do. They take care of that problem and they don't have psychoactive side effects. So this is well, um, it's well evidence-based, so it's been done for many, many years. And it works great. And it really does. And, and Jen's going to give you a description of what we do in the emergency room and how we've helped so many people. Now, the other thing I want to switch to is the how. All right, Denver Health is a large system, 7,000 employees. We take care of 140,000 uh, outpatients visits a year. A third of, the, of the, the population in Denver is taken care of by Denver Health. It's from jail to outpatient, to inpatient, to all sorts of services that we do. Denver Cares, a number of air. It's multifaceted. Um, and so with it, this center is overarching for the entire organization. The idea is that there's no wrong door in that piece. But how do you build something like that? And so the way you do it, and this is how we're doing it now, is you think about innovation first. So you innovate, you come up with an idea, and people do that all the time. And then you try and secure funding where you can do pilot testing, see if it works. We did that with the treatment on demand program and those kinds of things. You evaluate it. You make sure it really is doing what you think it's supposed to be doing. And then you replicate it and build on it and then get secured funding to be able to continue it on. And that's the modus operandi that I have done for everything in my career. And it's what we call a plan, do, study, act. You, you plan it, you do it, you study it, you act, and you keep going. And so continuous quality improvement is done throughout the entire process as we build the CAM and we make it so it becomes functional for the entire organization. Now, the model we're using, and this is for opioids, but it really can be for any substance. It's really agnostic to the substance. But there's money in opioids right now, so you take the money and you build your infrastructure and then you go forth and do. And so we have a hub. That's called the Outpatient Behavioral Health Services. It's been there for a number of years. It provides specialized substance treatment services for lots of things. We have a methadone program or a narcotic treatment program within that. Um, and we can then take people from wherever they present. And the idea is they present, you screen, you identify, you treat or link. <clears throat> and that's the idea behind it. Whether it's inpatient Denver Cares, which is our uh, detoxification program in the city, our emergency room, which you'll hear more about in a little bit, our correctional care program, people who are leaving jail, or people who are in jail, we want to give them the services they need there when they're in it, and then community when they come in. Get them in there, stabilization, and then get people to a primary care provider where they can through our community health services or non-Denver uh, Health facilities. It doesn't have to be just Denver Health. Non-Denver Health can be the narcotic treatment programs that do methadone, those kinds of things, or they can be other primary care providers. But the whole idea is to be able to stabilize and then get people into a, a system where they can look like anybody else. They do. And so they need their blood pressure taken care of. They need their diabetes addressed and all those things. And you can be sitting in a clinic where you look just like anybody and it's 
a little less specialized. So that's the model. Now, let's think about comparisons. We've been doing this. We sort of started it in 2018. So we've got some pre-data. Again, Janu January to June 2017 to January, June 2019. Just looking at some differences in terms of what we're doing uh, for new patients in our narcotic treatment program. That's the outpatient behavioral services. We've seen a 54% increase from just tweaking some things that you're going to hear about in a little bit. And we're reaching at-risk people, which is important. People who, um, by getting their treatment um, taken care of, are able to have functional lives and do, all, do better. And so um, that's an important piece. So some lessons that I want to just highlight in this first little part, and another thing I want to talk about where, where we're going, because I think that's fun, is the center really is trying to model this idea of identifying linking people. We can do it. We're doing it. We're getting people, and you saw those numbers. They get up. They've gone up. We, I didn't show you this information, but it's really hard to retain people. Okay, you get people in, you hook them up, and then how do you keep them engaged? And that's a hard thing, and we're working on it. So I'm going to describe some things we're going to do. And some of it has to do with workforce. So y'all are licensed clinical social work students. Come on and work with us. We'll take care of you, and we'll, we'll, you can do this work. There's lots of good opportunities. But the other piece is, is that it affects us in terms of financially. And so we really, you know, you want to keep the visits up, and you want to have the... This is my colleague, Josh Bloom, who has come, and he will be here in just a few, and we will be talking in just a few minutes. And then think about it when you're trying to change a, a big system, transformation takes time, and it's incremental. And so you're looking at the long haul versus just trying to start something up real quick. Now I want to talk about where we're going. And it's very exciting work. We did strategic planning in April of 2019. Uh, these folks were part of it. We had lots of people, both community and stakeholder, community stakeholders as well as people in the organization um, from all sorts of disciplines. And we have a goal for the Center for Addiction Medicine. Coordinate the essential health services for persons with substance use disorder. As you can see, it's not any type of substance. It's any substance. Um, and then our vision, what we want to do is to be a compassionate model for prevention and treatment of substance misuse to transform lives and to educate all. So we're a teaching institution. That's a part of it. And we have values that are very important. We're committed to those. Dignity and equity, community collaboration, passionate professionals. And we want to innovate through prevention, treatment, research, and education. I'm going to show you how we're going to do all of that. So a couple things I want to just highlight is from that strategic planning, we have four focus goal areas that we're going to try and uplift over the next five years. And you might say, oh, that's all? These are big buckets, okay? And so what I want to focus in on is what is inclusion, inclusive and compassionate care? And so what that is is to provide quality treatment to those who need it most and improve patient outcomes. That's a tall order. You've got to train, change systems to make that happen. You've got to educate in a new way. You've got to do a lot of different things in terms of stigma reduction to make it so everybody feels welcome and everybody's treated with dignity and respect. In terms of fiscal work, you have to think about the financial sustainability. How do you build this and keep it going? We really want to make sure that there's access for people all the time. Knowledge management is the part that I love the most. I'm a public health person, so I love knowledge management. And that's comprehensive, integrated repository of data um, with a common access interface 
to support strategic, operational, managerial, and research and evaluation. So if you think about it, you want to be able to link data from wherever people are being seen so you can see the continuum and you can see the work that's being done. And the last one is the full continuum of care, where I showed you that hub and spoke model. Wherever a person reaches, is seen, they get care. They're identified, they're treated, they're linked. And that's an important piece. And that's through our addiction consult service, our ambulatory care, our treatment on demand, and all of those things are very important. And so this, you know, in public health, you evaluate everything you do. Or what's the point of doing it? And no, If you don't know if it just feels good, it's not necessarily the right thing. You have to understand it by using data and either qualitative or quantitative to understand if it's working. So we have some fellows from the CDC that have been working with us, this Public Health Workforce Initiative, and this is a, one of our fellows did this paper. It's a baseline continuum of care, and if anybody's heard of the HIV cascade, it's the same model. The idea is that we estimated about 1% of the Denver adult population has an opioid use disorder, so that's about 7,000 people. And then we could find from Denver Health how many people were diagnosed with opioid misuse, opioid poisoning, or opioid use disorder that was diagnosed through uh, ICD-10 codes and other things. And then we looked at those people and looked at, did they get MET, at least one dose? Did they adhere to it? Did they adhere to it for 30 days? And what happened in a year? And so you then have this as a model that you want to work, use to see how you do with care. <clears throat> now, one of the most important things, and Josh has told me this, is you don't want to look at the cascade al alone. You have to look at each of the individual columns and work on each of the barriers associated. And that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> and so we're hoping, with our work, in five years, this is what will happen. We'll identify people, we'll link them, they'll adhere. And then a couple other things I want to talk about here, <coughs> excuse me, is it's not just opioids. There are lots of substances. Methamphetamine, this is the state of Colorado, we have lots of methamphetamine. We also have a lot of alcohol issues. And those deaths, these are all deaths. <coughs> and you can see they're going up. But also, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, suicide, and those things, self-harm, are all tied together. And so we have to think of the center through that lens of holistically looking at those things. And this is data from Denver Health, so it's specific. And I've been told by multiple people this is an underestimation. So take it with a grain of salt, but it's very important. Of 5,000 Denver Health admissions to prim of patients with a primary diagnosis of substance use disorder in 2018, alcohol and methamphetamine made up 64% of it. Look at opioids, it's 13%. And so you're seeing that... Um, we have a problem that we need to address. And the treatment for methamphetamines and alcohol is very different from opioids. And so we have to really address those things. You can look at our emergency room, same data. And that's just primary. Think of all the pancreatitis that walks through the door, that that's the primary. And then this last um, one, before I move on to the final thing and send it off to my colleagues, is really Denver and doesn't have the capacity to really treat, if you look at the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine's criteria for how you should be putting people into care after you identify them. We don't have the intensive services that are needed to address those. This data from 2018 
from Signal Network providers shows it's we of the people that got some treatment, very few got intensive res, intensive services, and many people didn't receive care who at, wanted it. So that's a problem, and so we have a capacity issue. So a couple takeaways: we're implementing this no wrong door. We we think it is innovative where we can effectively identify and link people to care. It's with opioid use misuse at the moment. Our plan is to expand to all types of substances, and we'll do that within the next year. And so if you're interested, stay informed. We have a website that Denver Health has. And of course, advocate for inclusive and compassionate care. As you're growing and learning, you have to think about it through that lens of how you um, train people, educate people, talk to people, and all of those things. So with that, I'm going to pass it on to my colleague, uh, Jen Nager. Okay. Okay. So I'm Jennifer Nager. I'm an LCSW with Denver Health, um, and I'm the team lead for the Treatment on Demand program that um, we'll talk a bit more, and then I'll send it off to Dr. Bloom. Okay. Um, so tre <laughs> Treatment on Demand provides linkage from the emergency department. So within Denver Health, we have um, essentially three EDs. So we have our medical ED, we have our pediatric ED, and then we have our psychiatric emergency department. So the purpose of treatment on demand is really to link um, from the emergency department side to outpatient addiction treatment. So emergency department medical providers can contact our team of counselors essentially 24-7. Um, we have a team that covers 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and then we move to an on-call from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. We can go out to the ED across all three EDs. We meet with patients that have been inducted. Um, so the photo there is from, um, we had the opportunity to talk with Colorado Public Radio in February. Um, they came out and did a piece on, on the pilot program. And so um, in the picture are Samantha, who's one of our LPCs. Helen is an LCSW, myself. Um, Alec is an LPC. And then in the middle is Veronica, who's actually a patient of OBHS. Um, she agreed to share her story. Um, she did a beautiful job. It's online still, so if anyone's interested, that can be read online. Um, so next to Veronica is Shannon, an LPC, and then our, on the far right is Lisa Guinness, who's our director of OBHS. So once we're paged by the provider, we have a, an hour to present to the ED side. We complete a full biopsychosocial intake. Um, we do all the consents that patients need to do to enroll in the NTP that Judy was referring to. Um, but what's been really great about the Treatment on Demand program is we can link to not only Denver Health, but we can also link to either Behavioral Health Group or Denver Recovery Group. So the intake that we've done in the emergency department is going to meet the intake requirements of the outpatient clinic on the other side. Um, so in the context of that intake, we also assess needed level of care. It's really important to try to get patients to where they need to be. We can't always do that um, next day, but we can make a recommendation on what we think would be best longer term for that patient. So we do a standardized triage for patients uh, on the emergency department side. It gives us a number, so it's something a little bit less subjective. We have sort of a guide for going forward. And then um, really our third, our third goal is to link to next day care. So we've done all of what needs to be done on the front end in order to link patients to care the very next day. Judy talked some about the hub and spoke. I, I think it's relevant here also because 
what the Hub and Spoke model really did for treatment on demand was to build a foundation for us to build with, build on. Um, we had a lot of, of really strong established organizational relationships that were built out of Hub and Spoke that treatment on demand could really move into. Emergency docs had been doing the inductions prior to the counselors starting, but in 2018 is when counselors came on and linked to the provider. I think had we just come in without having that, it would have been a different process. But we had we had a lot of built trust between providers, um, lots of clear relationships, and we also had what I think is really important, and those are provider champions. I think Dr. Schley, Dr. Bloom have been really strong provider champions. Um, and what that does is it really builds buy-in in different departments and it creates creates a communication that maybe wouldn't be there otherwise. So what we're seeing in year one, some of the benefits, we're freeing up time and capacity in the outpatient setting. Um, when we talk to NTPs, they often say that the intake the, is cumbersome and that is what's keeping a higher number of people from accessing care. Oftentimes there's more patients needing a spot than there are spots. So what we can do is take that burden away from the outpatient clinic and do that on the emergency department side. So we're freeing up time and space on their side. Um, I think from the standpoint of a behavioral health provider, we see the incredible significance of patients being able to share their narrative, share their story um, at a time that's really, really acute. Um, the emergency department is not intended to be a counseling space, so we're able to move, move into that room with the patient um, and really hear what they have to say, listen, and be that warm handoff to their link into follow-up treatment. We can see initial measures show increased follow-up and increased patient satisfaction. So in year one, let me find my numbers. So we were able to look at how many patients were inducted um, before treatment on demand came on board and then after we came on board. So I had, I had mentioned that the emergency department side had been doing inductions prior to us becoming involved. So on this slide we can see um, in 2018, 51% of patients were linked to follow-up with an average follow-up of seven days. In 2019, 70% of patients were linked to follow-up with an average follow-up of two days. In 2018, 34% of patients were retained at 30 days. And in 2019, 60% were retained at 60 days. So not only are we linking more people, but we're retaining more people after we started the program. So one of the things that we've gotten to do, which I think is really cool, is to hear patients give their perspective on what that process felt like. Um, I think as providers, we can always make an assumption that it's better and things are going great. Um, but we really want to hear from patients and what, how do they feel it's going. So we did some feedback surveys to get not only a patient perspective, but also um, a counselor perspective and a provider perspective from the standpoint of the prescriber. So I think these are really powerful. One of the patients said everything was great. They didn't make me feel like trash, like some places do for being an addict. Another patient said the compassionate staff at Denver Health saved my life by helping me believe my life was worth saving. A third patient said they were super kind and genuinely there to help me no judgment. And then we asked 
Not surprisingly, counselors are a little bit wordier. <laughs> I have some additional things to say. Uh, Samantha, one of our counselors, said, I think the TOD program is a great resource for people in our community. I've had multiple clients tell me how difficult it is to get an intake with other treatment programs, and fortunately, they do not have to worry about that with this program. They're able to access it 24-7. It gives the client the freedom to initiate treatment when he or she wants to and feels able. Dr. Simpson, who's our um, head of our psych emergency department, certainly another physician champion um, of the model, has said, I'm ever an optimist. I believe fundamentally that a person in the throes of addiction wants to become well, and an exposure to medication-assisted treatment is that first step. Alec, another one of our counselors, said treatment on demand has been brought into existence to zero the clock, and at its very best to serve as a catalyst in reversing the course of addiction. It's accomplished by providing timely, caring, consistent, and pragmatic care to patients by linking them into treatment while building powerful alignments, encouragement, and support. So some of the challenges uh, we've identified in our first year, one, we always have to be really mindful of emergency department length of stay. We don't want to be adding additional time to what we would have seen in the emergency department otherwise. Denver Health is a trauma hospital, so certainly we have to be aware that um, while our patients are very important, we have to be mindful of the space and what the needs of the ED are. So what we can see on the bottom, which is, is actually quite interesting, is the median length of stay for those who are not inducted, so that's going to be anybody coming to the ED for any reason at all, 274 minutes. For those with, with the induction, we see that at 291 minutes. So while, while we could be adding a small amount of time, they're certainly comparable and the amount of time that we're seeing on the other side in the outpatient setting is significantly more than what we're seeing in the ED. So a couple of other things that we think affect the likelihood of follow-up, certainly going to be increased homelessness within our clients. Denver Health certainly has a high number of patients who are homeless and also who um, use polysubstances. So some of the takeaways, what we're finding with treatment on demand is that warm handoffs between providers really do reduce patient barriers. We're able to see more people being inducted, more people being linked to follow-up and within fewer days, and we're seeing more people retained in care and for longer periods. So we talked a little of this. The length of stay is comparable for those inducted and for those not inducted, but on the backside, we're saving typically at least, at least one to two hours in the outpatient setting. So when we look at the success of treatment on demand, we look towards our next steps, which really will be expanding beyond opiates. And I will move to Josh. Well, thanks for having us to talk about this. My name's Josh Bloom. I'm a primary care doctor and addictionologist in Denver Health's primary care clinics. Um, I run one of our HIV primary care clinics and also do HIV care in Denver City and County Jails. Uh, and um, it's actually... Uh, that's important, I think, because the perspective, like Judy mentioned, there's a lot of similarities between how the HIV epidemic was uh, addressed or has continued to be addressed and the addiction epidemic. And there's a lot of lessons to learn from the HIV world. Namely, you can develop a coordinated system of care, that you can um, really be mindful of the way federal funding is applied to try to create a system that uh, gets everyone on the same page, that produces the same high-quality uh, levels of care that also then disseminates knowledge in a, in a really um, democratic manner and allows everyone to benefit from uh, 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 experimental or uh, uh, really unique projects that happen 
um, by copying and duplicating in other places. And that's essentially what we're doing with addiction medicine. Um, so I'm just going to talk about the community health side of things. Go ahead. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm obviously a huge proponent of primary care. I think primary care will um, has the potential to save the world in terms of a lot of different diseases. And substance use is, is front and center because um, in the past, Medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder was something that was done in dark and dreary methadone clinics that were limited to the outposts of medicine and places where people didn't want to be seen and, and also um, that were held to incredibly strict regulations um, about how they could be, how they could be run um, and, and, and how many there could be in their treatment capacity. Well, primary care can really step in and has been able to step in ever since the Data 2000 Act which allowed primary care providers and others to prescribe this medicine, buprenorphine, for MAT um, in a primary care setting. We are uh, great at caring for people with long-standing chronic relapsing diseases. We do it all the time with diabetes and with hypertension. We're also great at getting used to failure. You know, patients may do a really good job of controlling their diabetes for several months. They may fall off the wagon around the holidays and eat a pie. Um, their A1C goes up. We don't necessarily fire them from care. We try to uh, use motivational interviewing to encourage them to get back on uh, their medications and, and address their health a little bit better. And so we're used to kind of rolling with that and, and doing the best we can for our patients in, in a, by using a harm reduction approach. Addiction is exactly the same. And um, from a patient standpoint, especially if you're in a small town, especially if you're in a place like rural Colorado, there is a lot less stigma uh, parking your truck in front of your primary care provider's office, and this is a picture of a clinic in Sterling, Colorado, where you may not want to go to the specialized mental health treatment facility, but it's it's very easy to just say, well, I'm getting primary care the same place that my that my family, my kids, my wife, or or husband are getting care, and this is just another thing to be incorporated into primary care. Um, we also know that primary care will be where the treatment gap is. Filled, we have about 43,000 individuals statewide uh, with opioid use disorder, and we estimate that roughly 13,000 of them are in treatment with methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone, the medications um, that are um, commonly prescribed and considered MAT. That's you know a little bit south of 30%. Um, we are not going to make up a 30,000 patient treatment gap with methadone clinics. Methadone clinics are wonderful and they're incredibly important, but they're so restricted and they're so difficult to start new ones that it's really, there's an incredible inertia and challenge with trying to start a new methadone clinic, particularly if you're in rural Colorado. And so what you can see from this, uh, from this uh, table is simply the number of providers who have uh, applied for a waiver. That is the um, governmental designation from the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment that allows providers to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. And you can see it was, it was you know, it was a very pretty small number in 2014, even though things had really even picked up then. But compare that with uh, last year, 2018, 445 individuals ha ha were applying for a new waiver, and the first three months of 2019, 167. So we're on, we're on pace to have over 600 people uh, uh, apply for their waiver this year. Um, Another key point of adopting this in the primary care is that whenever something starts off in specialty care and then gets adopted into primary care, um, the, the rules sort of change around how that gets provided. A, another good example would be hepatitis C treatment. When that came out, it was a very limited resource. The medicines were extremely expensive and hard to manage, and so patients had to come in weekly. Um, we used to have them come in for weekly labs sometimes, and then they could graduate to every other week labs, and we were very strict about who we put on treatment. As a result, very, very few people of the whole pool of people with hepatitis C actually wound up getting treatment. Um, similarly, with addiction medicine, when there are very few providers of the service, it was something that was very exclusive. It was based on an abstinence-only model that said you had to be 
um, sober from all substances in order to continue to get this, otherwise you'd be discharged from care. It was very high intensity and, and it required a lot of uniformity and a lot of um, oversight. In primary care instead, you know, we never fire patients. When do you ever hear of a patient getting fired from primary care? In theory, it's unlimited because patients don't get fired because there's way, way more primary care doctors who can do this work. And it's harm reduction based, right? In primary care, I'm thrilled if a patient moves their A1C from 11 to 9. Is it the goal? No. Are they at less risk of their uh, neuropathy worsening? Yes. Is it, is it better than when it was 11? Absolutely. So we take a very uh, strong harm reduction based approach. What that looks like for addiction is suddenly it's not abstinence based for other substances. We realize that buprenorphine um, only treats opioid use disorder. If they come in and they're using methamphetamine and, and opioids, we will continue to treat them even if they're continuing to use methamphetamines. We will try to coach them, we'll try to coax them, we will again use our motivational interviewing techniques to try to get them to uh, uh, obtain, attain sobriety from all substances, but that's not often a realistic goal and we're happy if they're simply reducing their harm. If they're no longer using heroin, if they have naloxone and can save their best friend's life uh, after an accidental overdose, if they're at lower risk of overdose themselves, that's, that's a win. Uh, as as uh, my friend Lisa Ravel likes to say, dead addicts can't recover, they don't recover. If people die, you've lost them forever, you can never actually get them into sobriety. And um, that's reflected, that, that shift from specialty care to primary care to making this a more widespread resource has really been reflected um, in a couple of prominent areas, including the New York State's guidelines for how to implement buprenorphine and uh, an Annals of Internal Medicine article that came out last year that really just talked about how, look, if a patient doesn't want to engage in really intensive counseling, that's okay if you think they're still benefiting from MAT. Maybe a simple, brief intervention, uh, asking them about illicit drug use, side effects, withdrawal symptoms, um, medication adherence, that may be enough. That may be all the counseling they're willing to engage in, and that's okay if they're engaged in care and, and coming back. Um, we talked about polysubstance use. We even talked about diversion. Uh, diversion um, can be expected with buprenorphine. It's a highly diver divertible drug. But most people who actually use diverted buprenorphine are using it to treat withdrawal symptoms. They're actually not using it to get high. And so uh, what these guide, guidance have said is that even if you think a certain number of the tablets of buprenorphine that you're putting out there are being diverted, that may not be a, a, an adequate reason to say, I shouldn't be prescribing this or I should cut this person off, knowing that some of that diverted buprenorphine is actually being used by people with a use disorder to treat withdrawal symptoms rather than for euphoria. So we uh, essentially adopted what is called the office-based opioid therapy model. Um, as both uh, of my colleagues have said, it really requires a champion. And that's, uh, I think, a, a key cornerstone point if you're going to adopt this anywhere. Um, it doesn't have to be someone who belongs to a specific role, though. It doesn't have to be a physician. It doesn't have to be a nurse. It doesn't have to be a counselor. It doesn't have to be a social worker. It can be any of those. If you just have one really uh, um, passionate person who wants to implement this in a clinical setting, it can be highly successful. Um, and again, psychosocial services. What the letter of the law says is you have to have the capacity to refer to counseling. So that, that can be something as simple as, hey, I'm going to refer every patient to the local 12-step meeting. I'm going to call the person who runs the CA or NA meeting, and I'm going to get in good with him or her and, and get to know them and, and tell them when I'm referring a patient make sure they're seeing them. And I might only do very brief counseling in my visits. And then it's reimbursed in primary care in the same way we have our standard patient visits. So the way we bill our visits for colds or hypertension or anything, it's reimbursed exactly the same way for buprenorphine therapy. So there really is a, uh, a financial incentive 
to provide this care. Um, and the, the critical elements are fairly straightforward. You need to clinch the diagnosis, you need to educate patients, you need to monitor them, uh, you uh, um, need to identify any complications. What you don't want to see and what you occasionally see, and actually as someone who reviews cases for um, a, a local education, uh, actually a national education company that educates providers who are run afoul of, uh, of rules and, and boards, is that you don't want to say like we're replacing one pill mill with another pill mill. It's not that you replace the oxycodone and hydrocodone that you're just doling out with buprenorphine that you're just doling out. You have to really, in good faith, be uh, creating um, longitudinal uh, and therapeutic relationships with clients. You have to really be addressing these things. You have to be assessing them on an ongoing basis for not only their adherence to the treatment, but also for signs of recovery. Um, a big part of that is encouragement to attend what you might call self-help groups or mutual help groups. Um, a, a big piece uh, of relapse really comes from um, individuals who may start off doing really, really well on medication-assisted treatment. They engage incredibly well. Um, they're in sub early sobriety, but in the meantime, they really haven't been able to replace any of the typical triggers um, or uh, uh, contacts or um, in simply the environment in which they previously used. So when you have the exposure to the same people who were using before, the same social life, the same people, the same tr uh, uh, environmental triggers, you're very, very likely to not be successful in the long run. And so attending self-help or mutual help groups is about gaining a new peer group. It's about changing your life. It's about entering recovery, finding the things that are meaningful to you so that you can have a prolonged um, sobriety successful recovery as opposed to simply a period of abstinence. So what we've done at Denver Health is we wound up getting a, a federal grant to um, uh, train and um, deploy certified addictions counselors into each of our primary care clinics. And uh, at first it started with four and now we're up to seven who are located in a total of eight of our clinics. We also have a couple of health educators who do what's called SBIRT. I'm sure many of you know what that is, just um, screening for substance use disorders. Um, and then um, some additional health educators who are there to help smooth this transition between the hub and spoke model. Um, we started off with maybe one or two providers who were data wavered, the people who basically stuck their necks out and said, yeah, I want to try to do this in primary care. And the rest of, of, of the folks hung back. And once this started to become a successful program and people realized not only is it is it something that is within the purview of primary care to do, but it's actually incredibly rewarding. It is so rewarding to take someone who is in, in the precipice of losing everything in their life uh, and then get on this medication, maybe from the emergency department, and then suddenly have their brains come back online enough so they can start to prioritize and plan for the future and work on restoring um, healthy relationships and their jobs and their families and things like that. That is so incredibly rewarding. There's very few things in primary care that we get to do that give us that kind of immediate feedback and feel so good. So pretty soon you get other providers jumping on board and now we have usually at least six or seven uh, now uh, wavered providers in each of our clinics. So there's over 60 physicians, NPs, and PAs across uh, primary care at Denver Health who can provide this service. And uh, they're do seeing a lot of patients. 2,400 expert assessments since 2016. Over 1,600 unique patients have had uh, visits with our addiction counselors who can treat all substances from tobacco, alcohol, to methamphetamine and opioids. And we have um, 
at any given time around 200 patients in our buprenorphine program in primary care. We've had well over 300 patients uh, total who have engaged and been in this work uh, or been in treatment previously since we started in 2016. Um, this is just looking at those numbers in the last 12 months. Uh, all uh, visits for patients receiving SUD services um, in the primary care clinics, over 2,000. Uh, and um, um, the number of patients prescribed buprenorphine in the community health clinics, again, just in the last 12 months, we're now up to 304. This is more, um, more, recent, more recent data that we reported on our Uniform Data Services report to the federal government. So some successes, some lessons learned. Um, you have to have that champion, right? Whether it's the physician champion in the ED who says, I really want to do this, you need that person who is just mercilessly positive, the person who will not be uh, deterred by the naysayers in the clinical setting. Um, one thing that's been uh, a little bit difficult is uh, moving from a monoculture to a polyculture environment. So addictions counselors are often used to working in addiction treatment facilities, and you're surrounded by other addictions counselors. And the patients who come in are expecting addiction treatment. They've already recognized they have a problem. When you put them in a primary care setting, suddenly they're the only addiction counselor in a clinic that also includes nurses, providers, social workers, dietitians, uh, integrated behavioral health clinicians. And so now they represent their entire field to a bunch of other providers instead of getting to bounce ideas off of others who are doing the same work that they're doing. So that's a little bit challenging. Um, also, dealing with patients who are in an earlier state of change. They don't, when you come into an addiction treatment facility, by the time you hit the door, at a place like our outpatient behavioral health services specialty department, you've recognized you have an addiction issue or a, or a substance use disorder. In primary care, um, you may not even know you have a, a use disorder. Your primary care provider may be telling you, I think you have a use disorder, and you may be arguing vehemently back that you don't have one, you just have chronic pain, and if the providers would simply prescribe you enough opioids, you wouldn't need to buy more on the street and shoot heroin. And so that can actually be really challenging to bring people along and to get them to recognize that they actually have a use disorder and sometimes you have to just agree to disagree and say, well, you may not agree that you have this right now, but the treatment's still the same. We can treat your pain and your use disorder with this medication. Um, you also, when you're placing these people into primary care, an addiction counselor, or bringing providers on board, you need robust education. People need to feel supported. It's a new service. It does feel like sticking your neck out, and people need to feel like they're getting ongoing education to be successful in this work. And then uh, there have definitely been some issues. I think a big one, which we're still working on, that Jen and I uh, think about a lot, is simply how to get patients from the ER setting, from the emergency department setting, into primary care. It's more challenging than you might think. Um, as Jen mentioned, we use a screening questionnaire. Well, a lot of people who come to the emergency department screen out at a very high level. They, are, they should need the specialized addiction treatment facility, and they may have homelessness and uh, dual diagnosis and uh, all sorts of other things going on and a poor support network that make them kind of relatively poor candidates for getting this treatment in primary care. And yet, we see these folks in, they already are our primary care patients. We're already seeing them, and we feel like we actually want to see them. And in some cases, we can actually offer more services in some regards than the Specialized Addiction Treatment Center. We're not really a spoke in the hub-and-spoke model. We're really a super-spoke. And why I say that is because we're not just a, a physician like me hanging a shingle and, and prescribing buprenorphine. We have um, social workers in all of our clinics. We have integrated behavioral health with psychology and, and consultative psychiatry in all of our clinics. We have robust nursing uh, care, and we have care navigators. That starts to resemble uh, a really integrated system of care, and all of our primary care sites uh, meet 
what's called PCMH level three medical home designation. They really are already uh, a, an integrated um, uh, multidisciplinary care site. And that's why we really feel more like super spokes than, than truly a spoke. But we struggle with these other things. Turnover of key individuals. Um, problems with uh, communication. 42 CFR Part 2, the federal standard that says you can't share information about addiction across different providers. Uh, and um, simply coverage, as, as uh, Dr. Schley pointed out, no, not having coverage for residential treatment is a, is a huge, huge gap still, and that's being worked on across the state, but it's challenging because as someone who scores out at a very high level, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine <coughs> levels of care, you may do your best in the primary care setting or even in the hub setting, and that still may not be enough. They really need a full hard stop, and then sometimes I wind up seeing them in the jails, where today, for example, of the five people I saw, three of them had severe methamphetamine use disorder. And that's actually their primary reason for why they got into trouble with the law in the first place. And so that becomes our de facto residential treatment facility, unfortunately, is the jails. It'd be much better to treat folks in a true residential therapeutic setting than to wait till they come to see me in the jails for that. We'll stop there and open it up for questions. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.